This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest Great Old Mystery Pediatric Bioethics podcast. I'm delighted to have Melanie Janssen all the way from Australia, where it's currently dark, as our next guest. Now, where do I start with Mel? Poet, ethicist, pediatric intensivist, formerly PICU, Queensland Children's Hospital intensive care doctor, but also Gulf Health Service ethicist. Welcome, Mel. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And there's a lot we could talk about, but the focus today is going to be on a paper you wrote in 2017, together with Peter Ellerton. And I, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about Peter while he's not here to introduce himself. <laughs> so Peter is a philosopher at the University of Queensland and works for the University of Queensland Critical Thinking Project and was a lecturer of mine when I did my Master of Arts in Philosophy. And then we've later then collaborated on this paper and hopefully more in the future. Great. I mean, I, I'm bigging you up a bit to say this is probably one of our favourite papers we've read in the literature as our, our bioethics team here. And then the title is How to Read an Ethics Paper. And, and what I love about it is incredibly straightforward and looks simple. And I always think the most simple papers are the hardest to write. So, so congratulations. And I'll, I'll take you through it. And as we go through it in this podcast, well, hopefully people will get an understanding of why our group like it so much. But maybe to start off with, what made you write the paper? So a few things. I've When I started working in clinical ethics, I found that the the skills that were most useful to me in providing case consultation and in teaching about ethical issues in the hospital were the skills that I learned in, in my philosophy degree because I, I did a sort of general philosophy degree with a focus on ethics as opposed to doing a, a more narrowly focused bioethics master's. And I found those nuts and bolts skills that I learned in philosophy really the most useful and then I would find it a little bit frustrating that sometimes papers that were written for ethics people would say oh well these are just opinion pieces or whatever and I'd say well then they're not opinion pieces they're actually a good ethics paper is really well constructed and well thought through and in its own way quite rigorous but it's a different type of rigor than what we're used to when we're appraising scientific papers and I remembered as a medical student I had the paper that I referenced in my paper which was just how to read a journal article, I found it really helpful when I was learning to critically appraise scientific papers. And then I thought, well, there is, I think, some really high yield aspects of an ethics paper that people without a really in-depth background of philosophy should be able to apply. And I thought that it would be really useful for anyone in healthcare, but in particular people who work in ethics services. Yeah, I mean, I, the bit I went back to my philosophy that I've, I've almost forgotten, which is really bad, is the kind of the concept of premise, bridging argument, conclusion. And it's it's really nicely put in there. And I think for anyone who's maybe a clinician starting to explore bioethical concepts, this paper is really useful to, to get some core philosophical thinking into your uh, structure. I do hope that it wasn't one of my papers that made you write this one, but I suspect it might have. <laughs> but one question early on before we go through the things you discussed. Do you think this is much more focused on reading the literature and making sure what, what's there, like a journal club would do, is what it's trying to say reasonable, constructed in a good way? Or do you think it's relevant to ethics consultation? I know that's a bit of a leading question, but I, I wonder what you thought. 
Well, I think it is relevant, and I, I mentioned it in, in the paper that I think it's useful when you're learning about ethics and you're reading papers and deciding whether you're going to have them affect your practice. It's useful to review papers. I think it's also something you can use when you're writing your own ethics paper. And then I think reading ethics papers, writing ethics papers, and the thinking that goes along with that are the same skills that you need to use on the fly in clinical ethics consultation. So I often find when I'm talking to clinicians about ethical dilemmas that they might have is getting really clear what we're actually talking about is really useful. So for example, something that I find quite common where the point at issue is shifted, which is the first thing that I talk about in the in the ethics critical appraisal worksheet, is for example, you might be deciding if a, a child should and go on some long-term technology, for example, home ventilation or something like that. And people in the multidisciplinary team meeting about it, people will often be talking about, well, can their family really cope and what is the nature of their disease and are they stable enough and et cetera. Whereas you actually, these are different questions. You actually need to decide whether the physical medical condition of the child is in, in principle a candidate for this technology and do they meet the other criteria and then once you've decided yes, and you can pick that apart and say why or why not, once you've decided, well, yes, they they would in principle be a candidate, then you can look at the other issues of do their family live close enough to the hospital? Would they be prepared to move? Do people think that this family could cope? And do we have enough support to support them in that? They're separate points at issue and they need to be addressed separately yeah. before, you know, so that you can clearly get get through the get to the root of the problem and make a clear and well thought out decision and this happens a lot in group discussions I think in the hospital so if you've practiced doing this and learned how to pick these things out when you're reading and writing papers then it, it makes it easier for you to do when people are talking and you're trying to help facilitate a group discussion about ethical issues. The other thing the paper sets out really nicely at the outset is the concept of facts and values like a channel might mean a David Hume and the idea of is ought and, and, and that really important fundamental difference between the two that I think gets lost sometimes in clinical ethics. Would you would you touch on that a bit? Oh. Yeah, so I think they get conflated, which is the problem. So for example, I think one of the ways when people conflate fact and value claims, it, whereas somebody might say something like, I think we should withdraw life-saving therapy from this child because it's futile. Or they, they don't use the word futile, they might say, you know, because I, I don't think it's the right thing to do. So that's clearly a value claim. And you need to now pick apart what that value claim is based on. Well, why don't you think it's worth continuing? Well, because I think the child is suffering. So then that, that the child is suffering is a value claim. And you can say, well, why, why do you think they're suffering? And, uh, you know, are they are they in pain? Are they, you know, breathless on the ventilator? Are they working harder or whatever? And then the next question is often, are, are they really suffering? Because in ICU, for example, I sort of think if any child is actively suffering moment to moment in my ICU, like I'm not doing my job properly. Like Also then if you ask for evidence to back up that factual claim, they go, oh, well, I just don't think it's right that they should sit there so heavily sedated. And you go, okay, well, that's a different, different question to to the yeah. fact that they're suffering. And we shouldn't conflate our own suffering, our own moral suffering with, with them suffering. You know, so I think it really helps to pick apart those things and get really clear why people are feeling, you know, morally uncomfortable with something. Yeah. And I, you went in the paper from there to what I think was particularly attractive, I thought, was the idea of a shifting point at issue. 
And in that example, exemplar, you, you kind of then say, well, we can't override parental autonomy, which is kind of a completely different issue, but is often conflated with the stuff you're talking about, about suffering. And, and I think, as you say, really specifically clarifying the issues. I, I think the paper really sets out how important that is to have a, a, a real discussion about the ethical issues that are underpinning a lot of the things we're talking about. So yeah. assumption, there's another thing that's in there. And I guess it might be, I, you've done so much in this that I think what's particularly helpful and, and it's going to be probably of great utility. See, you've got my ethics hat on there. The ethical critical appraisal worksheet, which is, it's really nicely set out. It's helpful. You could almost stick your paper in there and go through it and try and work things out. So I don't think, would you take us through that worksheet, Matt? Is that okay? Yeah, that would be fine. So so the worksheet's arranged into three columns and the first column is the question you're asking yourself, like, can I find these particular bits of information in the paper? And then the middle column is the way that this was approached in the paper a problem. And then the third column is, you know, does it threaten the strength or credibility of the paper? Yeah. So the first step, and I think this is also the first step when you're trying to work out any ethical problem that someone brings to you is what is the point at issue here? So what are we actually trying to get the bottom of? What are we arguing about, a philosopher would say? And I use the word, you know, argue in that philosophical sense, not not in the sense of people yelling yeah, at no, each other. Yeah. So, so what is the point at issue? And does the author say, you know, this this is the question that my paper is answering and, and then it will answer this question and then I'll move on to this. So if they don't, so that some, if they're conflating points at issue or if they fail to adequately address any of the points that they've raised, that could be a problem. And then the paper, that can then make the paper unclear or the conclusion not clearly linked to some of the arguments in the paper. So then step two, which I think is really important, is has the author defined all of the terms they use? Yeah, it's often not done well. Yeah, well, any, so for example, any guideline that you write, usually the first page is what are the definitions here? You know, when we spend all this time working out what the definition of sepsis, septic shock, et cetera, is in these worldwide things. And it's important because if we don't all agree what we're talking about, nothing that we come up with related to that could be, will be useful and everything will be muddy and we won't be able to, to interpret any of our research. It's the same thing with ethics papers. So you need to define all of the terms that that people use. So, and I'm just trying to think of, you know, I guess even if someone is writing a paper and their talk, they, they need to define words like suffering. They need to define yeah. like what they're talking about if they're talking about medical decision-making, et cetera. I think so, particularly when there's a subjective component to it to make sure people are, we understand what their definition is in some ways. There may be some terms that do have multiple definitions. And I guess that that's something you kind of get a bit lost in papers sometimes. You think, well, actually, is this author talking about the same thing I think they ought to be talking about? So I think that's... Yeah, exactly. And then you can have a better conversation, even if you don't agree with the, the exact definition they have put. Absolutely. You can at least talk about what they're talking about in clear terms, and then you can actually have a discussion about why you don't agree with the definition, why you think it would be more helpful to put it a different way. But if you have ambiguous definitions, it can really cause problems the definitions are so bad and incorrect as to then sort of skew the rest of the arguments in the paper then that that's also unhelpful so the third part is about which i i really like we talked about earlier a little bit is about dissecting the argument take me through that because i think that's quite important yeah so i think this is the bit that 
if you really wanted to get good at, there's a whole lot mm -hmm. of extra work to be done. But I think if you yeah. can do what I put in this paper, this gets you sort of a long way to examining arguments at quite a high level. So first is just to understand, you know, what I call the anatomy of an argument, that an argument is a set of claims or a set of premises that lead to a conclusion. So the example I use in the paper is, you know, premise one might be human suffering is undesirable. Premise two, medically extending life in case X prolongs human suffering. And then you always say a therefore before you jump to your conclusion, therefore medically extending life in case X is undesirable. So when you're looking at an argument, you have to look at it in, in two ways. You have to say, are the things this person has written true? And is the argument valid? And valid is a word that is like woefully misused in just about every context except in philosophical arguments. So people often use say valid when what they mean is reasonable. They'll say, well, I think they've got a really valid position when what they really mean is I think their position is, is reasonable because validity relates directly to the quality of reasoning. And what validity means is um, a valid argument is when the conclusion follows from the premises. So when it's impossible for the premises to be true and the conclusion false. So you put the idea of, of kind of truth aside for a moment, but you say in this case, if, if it is true that human suffering is undesirable, and if it is true that medically extending life in case X prolongs human suffering, you can't come to any other conclusion except that medically extending life in case X is undesirable. Yeah. So you go, okay, well, the reasoning in this argument is valid, but you might disagree that human suffering is undesirable. I've certainly with met. the premise, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so you can say, well, actually, I think, yes, your reasoning is valid, but your premises are not true. And premises can be fact or value claims, so human suffering yeah. is undesirable. Yeah, yeah. And then you just sort of go all the way through that again. So I think it's it's really important to to tease apart are the premises true, are the, is the reasoning valid? And you have to have both things. The reasoning has to be valid and the premises have to be true for the argument to be overall a good yeah. argument. So, so for anyone who wants to start thinking through this sort of thing, it's a lovely example of the logic of arguments. You've set it out very nicely. And I think we'll take people from not quite understanding that to, to reasonably having a, a feeling for how uh, arguments should be constructed and how you can challenge various parts. I think when the next is my favorite. And I, I was going to say that actually, I think this is really helpful for actually when you review a medical ethics paper, trying to think through how you construct a critical review of a paper where you're reviewing for a journal. So does the author address all relevant counter arguments done before? And I would say when I review a paper, that is almost never the case. Um, what's your experience, Mel? So I think, you know, maybe that's fair because it, it might be almost impossible to address every single possible counter-argument. Right. But I think you, you need to address all the relevant counter-arguments. Yeah. So you, you have to at least say, well, you know, often I, I got taught when I was doing philosophy that the way you construct a philosophy paper is P, not P, not not P. So P is your position, yeah. your argument for what you think. Not P is why somebody might disagree with your argument and not not P is why that person is wrong. So I think that's a really useful way to think about it. It's like writing a scientific paper without, you know, referencing other relevant papers that, yeah. that, that are part of the same area that you're writing on. If you haven't addressed the fact that there's, you know, possible counter arguments of X, Y, and Z to what you said, then you haven't fleshed out your approach to it. 
just just for the, uh, the scientist amongst us, P being less than one doesn't mean that no one disagrees with you, right? <laughs> okay, I better move on quickly from that very poor joke. And finally, I, I, the, the important bit of the last thing is kind of, is it relevant um, to your practice? And that's kind of, it's almost the point, isn't it? You know, if you're not going to change what you do or, or it's going to make you consider how you practice medicine for clinicians, then then obviously there'll be limited utility in the, the piece. But I think that's probably something that we all, all do in reviews of any kind of scientific or, or ethical papers, really. So I guess I'm, I'm going to take you somewhere else, Mel, if, if you don't mind, actually. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to give you a good example of that, Joe. It's actually one of the frameworks that you are an author on about. Oh, don't, don't do this. Go on. <laughs> I know, but I was just saying it, it's one of the things where you think, well, actually, I, the way that it was written, there were things that I probably wasn't anything in there that I didn't sort of know, but it did help me to organise my thoughts and therefore made me clearer thinking about certain clinical things that came up. So I think, you know, there's... I think it is really important to think, will I use this paper in my practice? I mean, that's what we yeah. do with our scientific papers. So I think we should do the same thing and not just have that thing that a lot of I've heard too many times of people go, well, you know, but ethics is all just just opinion. And I guess sometimes we have to agree to disagree. And you're like, we well, kind of can't agree to disagree that often in the hospital system when yeah. as a multiple team we have to make a we have to make a decision. So yeah. So anyway, I will I will leave that there. But I think we should Oh no, that's helpful, I think. Just it's got to be practically <laughs> able to influence what people do or at least organize your thoughts or something it has to be a, a reason behind something i guess yeah right, i'm gonna take you to a different place i i one of my current not bugbears that's not fair but um uh, you nicely sidestepped the issue of empirical ethics because obviously you know that's a scientific uh number-based if you like way of thinking about philosophical and ethical issues i'm going to be very naughty here but how useful do you find empirical ethics i'm going to stick myself in plato's cave here and maybe think well actually is, is it is it something that's as useful as some of the more moral philosophical parts of i'm gonna get in trouble now don't turn off everybody but um so i think empirical ethics is very useful but i think we shouldn't conflate it with we shouldn't re- conflate the results of empirical ethics papers or studies with sort of high quality philosophical reasoning so i think empirical ethics is is no different to empirical anything you know they're scientific papers like they are doing so you know for example one that i have found the types of papers that i find quite interesting is surveys particularly sort of well-constructed qualitative surveys of you know how do doctors currently think about rationing for example or how do what are doctors attitudes to voluntary assisted dying or whatever so people explore this and that can help inform you know policy writing it can help inform what education needs to be done so i guess it it gives you some data that you can use that helps you dig into the factual claims that you might make in a in a comprehensive philosophical argument for something but the the nature of ethics, I always tell people like ethics is the study of what you should do. So you can use information that you know about things or like, for example, sociology, anthropology, these are disciplines that tell us what humans actually do. But what we actually do doesn't necessarily mean that's what we should do. So you always need that that a priori philosophical piece and thinking about things that you might use all this empirical data that you get from nicely constructed scientific papers that are looking at things that are sort of ethically loaded but it it's not it is then not necessarily normative you know you so i think that's the key thing and you shouldn't we shouldn't 
say that just because a paper has numbers and some statistics in it doesn't mean that's what we should do because that group of people that we surveyed said we should do X doesn't mean. Yeah, I, I was I was I was deliberately teasing a bit about empirical ethics. I mean, there are some superb bits of work out there. <laughs> some some of my colleagues in the UK are particularly leading in that, and and you know it is really useful stuff. I, I guess it's that idea yeah, like it's not the be all end all. There's there's a role for. A, a I think that's really what I was trying to get at in this paper is that one thing that that, that people is that we need to see like clinical ethics thinking and the work that we do as rigorous. And it is rigorous in a way that is perfectly compatible with scientific rigor and you should have both. And in fact, most scientific papers have, yeah, should have good philosophical rigor behind them as well. And, but I think, yeah, we shouldn't just fall prey to this idea that because we have got some data, then this paper is more important or trumps a paper that is. I think that's right. I think that's probably one of the, the risks and what's happened over the last few years has been a lot, you know, an increased profile for empirical ethics, which I think is really good and important, but it shouldn't be at the exclusion of, of the more conceptual things, things we think through. I guess, I mean, I, I, it's quite interesting having done ethics for <laughs> quite a few years now. One of the things is you come back and, and, and start thinking about the fundamental aspects of what it is we do. And I think there are a lot of questions there that haven't been answered. So as well as having empirical research about what ethics teams do, and there, there's the weather question, the ought question that I, we're starting to reflect on again. I mean, we just had a piece about ethical advice in pediatric care published Dave Archer and Emma from our centre and a cave in archives recently, when we've kind of looked about what it is that ethics support in child health in our particular area actually is. What is it do we think we're doing? What is it that people want? Is that the same thing? And then before you even go to how it might be constructed or reviewed or, or how its efficacy quantified, there's the really fundamental aspects about whether it ought to exist in the first place that I, I'm not sure that we've really tackled. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Mel? Yeah, I do. And I, I think it's a really interesting problem. And, and overall, I, I think in principle, the idea of, a degree of standardization and quality control to to clinical ethics consultation is important because you know it is even now still a, a bit of a wild west depending you know yeah. and there's no specific you know you don't get credentialed for clinical ethics at least in an Australian hospital in the way that you would to be an intensivist there's nothing yeah. that exists to say oh yes you have done the stuff that means you can do this because it's a newish profession and I think that the trouble with that though I would I wouldn't like to see strict standardization because I think what different organizations need for clinical ethics support is quite different and it can look quite different mm. and be no better or worse in different places so I think it is important for us as an ethics community to define really what ethics expertise is and then we could then we can go about some kind of broad credentialing for people that work in the space. So I think the what is ethics expertise is is the you know, first point at issue we need to address in that. I we have I I better name check him. We have Dave Archer, a moral philosopher in our group. One of his papers from years ago is is kind of suggesting there really isn't even ethics expertise. So it's, yeah. it's, it's mean, interesting, you know, what, what, what is an expert in, in ethics? And I, I I don't know. I think we're feeling our way by providing support and generally feedback is good. But Mel, your experience, you've been around the world 
your Churchill Fellowship went, probably got more experience of ethics in different countries than anyone I know. My experiences of, of kind of Melbourne, Boston, and other centres in the UK, but I, we don't even have standardisation in the same city in the UK. And, and even in paediatrics, if you look at whether paediatric ethics should be separate from ethics support more generally, we're, we're the only team in the UK who really invite parents to the ethics meetings. And that's, you know, an interesting point, whether that ought to happen. I mean, we, we would strongly say that's very useful and it's not something we would ever go back on. But um, it is interesting that even that aspect in child health, there's no standardization about that. So I think there's a lot of stuff to think through going forward. Yeah, I, th- I think there is a lot of stuff to think through. And I think questions like that, which is like how you operationalize your ethics service, depend on what exactly in your organization, what what gap is the service filling? And I find that often, um, I mean, being from Australia where ethics services grew up in a vaguely similar way to the way that they did in the UK, that they came up sort of from a grassroots yeah. um, way and they exist in our sort of universal healthcare system that has very strong multidisciplinary, including sort of social work yeah. and pastoral care support. But the, so I find sometimes it's very hard to compare papers on clinical ethics services from the states, for example, because the health system is quite different and the way that clinical ethicists operate is quite different and they sort of, their role crosses over a bit with, I I think, I mean, obviously there's a lot of variation in different different centres even within the US, but I I think sometimes, for example, some of what a clinical ethicist does is actually done by our social workers. So our, mm-hmm. our social workers have a slightly different role than in, in those systems. So I think it, it really depends where you're at. But I, in terms of the question of ethics expertise, I think I don't think having ethics knowledge or having done a, a master's in ethics and written papers on ethics necessarily makes you a more moral person or more you sure. know, of an oracle for what the right thing mm-hmm. to do is. So I define ethics expertise like, you know, however, I do think there is an expertise there and it is important to to define it. What I think ethics expertise is, is process expertise. So being put out all the things that I have written in this, in this worksheet essentially is like being able to pick out people's arguments and be able to look and dissect an argument and think, well, what are the possible counter arguments to this? And I think you have a lot of ethics. So part of what experts are is is a knowledge bank. And I think, you know, if you're working in clinical ethics, you will have read, you'll be across and up to date with the, the way that people are doing things in clinical ethics with the thinking in a certain area. You know, voluntary assisted dying has become legal in all states in Australia in the last couple of years. So there's been a lot written about that. And now that's something that you know, as a clinical ethicist working in a, a hospital where that will be provided, I then need to get myself up to date with all the thinking around it, lots of things. So if you've had the practice of thinking through the arguments and you've read a lot of, and you then come across all these possible counter arguments that you may not have thought of on your own, Brilliant. you're then a reservoir of knowledge for people about that, but also your process expertise in terms of how to think about these things. And I think in clinical ethics, there's another whole piece of how to help other people think about these things because one of the key things and one of the reasons why I think clinical ethics services should be deliberative, i.e. you should have all the relevant stakeholders and you should talk the problem through with them, is that we don't, everybody clarifies their 
thinking and their values even about certain things as they think about it and talk to mm. other people about it. Because, you know, you've, we've probably all had that, um, the, the experience where we think, oh, I feel quite strongly about X. And then you end up talking to somebody, you go, oh, hang on, yeah, I hadn't considered, you know, A, B and C about that. I think I might actually will shift my position a little bit. And your so your values about something actually change as you talk to other people about it. And I think the real value in a clinical ethics service is having people that can help other people clarify their thinking. And and so so that's what I think a good clinical ethics service should bring. And I think that some people... Um, one of the things that I came across in my church with fellowship is that a lot of people say, well, clinical ethics is really just mediation. Like, so good clinical ethicists are actually just skilled mediators. Yeah. And they come to yeah. agreement. And I, I do agree that there are some mediation skills and me that are useful and there is conflict resolution to be done. But I think, I mean, and obviously there are lots of different types of approaches to mediation as well. It's a field approximately as poorly defined and credentialed as that's good in ethics but when I had done mediation training in the past the dominant kind of model was that you're doing facilitative mediation so you don't evaluate anything yeah. that anybody says to you and your goal yeah. is to to get your two parties to come to an agreement that they are happy to sign off on the quality of that agreement is is not your brief like the except that you need to get them to to agree to it whereas I think in clinical ethics I think that's really the key difference is that yes you might do some yeah. of the functions that a mediation service might do. Well, some, you, some overlap. Okay. Mel, we are out of time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mary Jackson, all the way from Australia. Zoom is an amazing thing now. We can have people talking just from all over the world, which is great. So I should clarify that the paper you published is available in the Journal of Medical Ethics 2018 August edition. Important to say other journals are available. Mel, thanks again for your time and I hope everybody enjoyed that and we look forward to having you on the next Ethics Podcast. Bye. Thanks so much, Joe. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GOSH Bioethics Podcast. We would love to get your feedback on the episode as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.